Whew. <laughs> uh, now we got to figure out what to talk about. <laughs> All the setup, but now we got to yeah. shake that tree loose. Yeah. Well, we can start by talking about the varsity. Yeah. Because um, yeah. you were, you were, were you on the board at some point, or you were involved through stage company, or how? Start rolling the camera. I'm, oh, we're rolling. Oh, we're rolling. Okay. <laughs> Hello, camera. Yes. Well, let's do. Let's talk about the varsity. Here's what happened. Um, back in 2000, it was late 2007, early 2008. I was president of the stage company, and we were homeless. Uh -huh. uh, our old bank building had been condemned. Uh, it died of old age. Bless its heart. Uh, but we got a call from the mayor who said, Carasota's Theater wants to give us the varsity building to the city, but the city doesn't want to own it. Do you want it? And we were like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we found out later we weren't the first people to be asked, but we were the first people to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we... Um, we started working on it almost immediately, even before we had a key to the building. Uh -huh. There was a bit of a lag there where nobody in this town had a key to the building uh, because Carasotis um, still had to get the okay from Deutsche Bank, which uh -huh. held a lien on the building, um, and Deutsche Bank had to okay the transfer of property, which happened pretty much without a hitch. But for a while, the Carasotis guy would come first thing in the morning, and he'd let me in, uh, and I would stay here until I could let the workers come in. <laughs> we didn't have a key. Uh -huh. We could get out, but once out, you couldn't get back in. Uh -huh. So we spent our days like that. We came in immediately, and I really want to remind people what a tremendous job that working crew from the stage company did. I mean, this... Um, these various theaters that you're now familiar with, they were just boxes of dust yeah. and, and broken, broken down seats. And um, the concession stand, the, the floor was sticky with Coke syrup and popcorn oil. And I mean, you know, we had to clean it out with a shovel. Yeah. We really did a lot of demolition before anything had to be done. And uh, the stage company crew was spearheaded by Craig Hind and Lauren Cocking and a number of other people. Um, and they did, they worked um, hours every day for eight or nine months to get the place ready to open up. In the meantime, you know, when we came in, a lot of these bulbs were burned out. So there was a time when I could find every place in this building in the dark. <laughs> I probably couldn't do it anymore, but uh -huh. back then I could. It was, it was exciting and a bit daunting. We weren't entirely sure we were going to be able to make it into a place where we'd be comfortable inviting our community. But hard work did it. Hundreds of volunteers, hundreds, not just the builders, but every Saturday, we had people from all over the community come in. What can we do? What can we do? Well, you see those broken down um, chair seats over there? Um, pile them into that dumpster out in the parking lot. <laughs> okay. 
and people did. It was, it was a tremendous effort and a lot to be proud of, really. There's so much memory in this building. Oh, indeed. In it, it, it runs a gamut of good and bad. I mean, uh, just talking with Ginger um, a couple days ago for for her, her episode, right? Like, yeah, her memories of this are of you know the segregation, pain of segregation, mm-hmm. um, right? And it's 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 truly astounding that a, that a single physical structure could go through such transformations yeah. over the course of its existence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what we found when we started welcoming people in was we had to deal with that history head on. Um, we, I, we brought in groups from the outside and gave them tours while we were still working on the place. I remember up here in this theater, um, some black church women wanted to see the upstairs. And it wasn't until I got up here that I remembered, you know, the history of this balcony, mm-hmm. uh, that it was a segregated space where African-Americans were forced to sit if they wanted to, to see the movie or the show. Um, but as always, you know, not, uh, you have to face these things head on. You can't pretend it didn't happen yep. because it did. So I started talking about the history of this place as a segregated place. And I could kind of see from the, the church women that they needed to hear it said. They mm-hmm. needed it acknowledged. Um, I think we all need our histories acknowledged, some of us more than others. Yeah, and and that is, uh, I tell you what that is, that is a good lead-in for episode 43 of the WTF Carverdale podcast with Catherine Field. Um, the uh, thought here was not explicitly to be interviewing more candidates, uh, but it's kind of come around to that, so we'll probably see in the next a uh, week or so, uh, a handful more interviews with folks who are candidates for uh, District 95. Uh, the is it is it grade school? Yeah, board? it's the elementary that, school elementary district. Elementary school. That's the right phrasing for it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, look at it in that context as well. But understand that Kathy uh, is just as much another interesting person living an interesting life, uh, integrally tied uh, to this little place we call home, uh, yeah. Carbondale, Illinois. Uh, I really appreciate you taking me up quickly on the offer, too, Kathy. Thank you for that. Oh, you bet. You <laughs> bet. I want to show this to you. This is this is my favorite face mask. You can bring that one uh, forward. Bring it a little closer. A little bit of light yeah. To see if it... This is my favorite face mask. Um, this was given to me by the district. I am currently um, a member of the Carbondale Elementary School District 95 School Board, mm-hmm. and I have been for four years, which means I'm up for re-election um, this year, uh, next month, in fact, April 6th <laughs> is the election. But this is my favorite uh, for several reasons, one being that it doesn't, you know, bind like a lot of face masks do, and that's important. Yeah. And also because it has our new district logo on it, uh, it says en- engage, innovate, love, grow. 
<laughs> and then it says proud school board member on the outside. So that yeah. covers that covers quite a few uh, quite a few aspects of what it takes to uh, rear students in oh, yeah. the modern age. Yeah. I, I kind of like how that's come together. Yeah, <laughs> engage, innovate, love, and grow. Yeah, that came out of the strategic planning effort that the district has recently undertaken, uh, which, if you're interested, can be found on the district's website, uh, along with other information about the board and about um, programs and 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 announcements. So I don't I don't usually kind of go into the the deep dive on the on the uh, functional aspect of of. Or at least I didn't do that with with city council folks. But I mean, starting yeah. off with school board, uh, you know, a lot of folks may not be fully aware of like what the actual functions of the school board <laughs> entails. I mean, yeah. and, you've been, and you've been doing this for a term yeah. now. I mean, what are what are some things that you've learned about what the school board does and doesn't yeah. do that you may not have known coming into it all? Yeah. Well, that's fair because you know when I was uh, a busy young mother. I was probably dimly aware that my kid's school had a school board right. overseeing it, but I couldn't have told you who was on it. Um, <laughs> I had no serious complaints that couldn't be solved by the principal, so yeah. you know there was really no need for me to know. Um, but like everything else, the longer you live, the more you realize there are a whole lot of crew people backstage mm -hmm. um, keeping things going. You know, you might see the actors out front, but backstage is equally important. I, I like that we're sticking to this in terms of yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. stage company. I love it. Oh, absolutely. So um, the stagehands who comprise the school board, their primary um, responsibility is to hire a superintendent and direct that superintendent. That's the most important thing we do. Mm -hmm. And then the superintendent ideally should be able to put together his or her own admin team mm -hmm. and they report back to us on a regular basis. This is you know, usually in the form of school board meetings. Um, they bring us in when there are questions of policy to decide. We do make policy for the district, mm -hmm. but it's the superintendent is the key to all this because, you know, much like the executive branch anywhere, mm -hmm. um, um, the superintendent puts those policies into action, mm -hmm. sees to it that they get followed, um, see to it that the, the goals laid out in the strategic planning, you know, um, get followed, um, see to it that everybody in admin, and faculty and staff have what they need to do their jobs. So our job is very much top down. Okay. We set the things in motion with the hiring of a superintendent and directing the superintendent and making policy. We don't get involved in the day-to-day -day, um, operations of the school. Mm -hmm. But if you contact one of us and you say, well, I'm having this problem, we'll know who to direct you to. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, we are engaged to that extent. Um, I remember when we did our school board training, someone likened it, and here's another show business metaphor for you. <laughs> 
likened it to there's a dance floor and there's a lot of people dancing. We are not on the dance floor. Mm -hmm. We board members are up in the balcony. And we look down on the dance floor and we admire the work and, and you know, um, are interested in everything they do, but we ourselves are not actually dancing. Mm -hmm. Huh. That is interesting. It is interesting, yeah. Every now and then you might get a chance to change the music, but other than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If the district is running well, uh, and I think District 95 has been for the past three years. If the district is running well, they don't need us down there dancing. Yeah. They need us up here going, all right. <laughs> so you talked about, uh, you know, being a, being a, uh, a young mother and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, not really paying much, much mind to this. And I'm not, I'm not using this as a segue to talk more about yeah. school stuff, but yeah. more about, uh, you know, you know, just being. Uh, a a parent in Carbondale, and are you are you a uh, a, a multi generational parent, or did you move to Carbondale for college, or what uh, is your Carbondale origin story? Is oh where I, where I'm chasing here. Yeah, I guess I'd say. Um, my late husband E. G. Hughes and I moved here in 1985. Um, I don't think you probably ever had a chance to meet E.G. I, I can't not. think when you would have. He's been gone now six years, last December. But uh, he and I moved here in 1985 because we needed a cheap place to live. <laughs> <laughs> Carbonell's cost of living then and now yeah. is less than it was up north. And um, we needed that. And once we settled in and began to see not just, um, you know, the nuts and bolts, like a cheap place to live and, and, and nice neighbors and so forth, but began to appreciate just the wealth of culture and opportunities here. We raised our two daughters here, and it used to occur to me on a regular basis that everything you could want for raising a child was here. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you want them to spend time in the out of doors, go hiking in the forest. If you, if you want them to experience art and culture, raise them backstage yeah. at the stage company. Yep. <laughs> which is what we did. And now our younger daughter, Katie, is yeah. a professional theater artist in Pittsburgh. Uh, she does this for a living. Imagine that. How is, how is Katie doing? Oh, she's doing great. Awesome. Yeah. She's, uh, she's on the faculty at University of Pittsburgh, and her husband is too. Uh, they both teach technical theater, you know, scene painting and props and all kinds of theater shop things. Um, my old mentor, Mary Boyle, used to say, if you love theater, become a techie, because actors <laughs> wait tables, but techies do theater. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, and that's a very real thing. Because it's a very got, real thing. You know, acting is only a very small part of actually creating a production, and the real hands-on, like, yes. paid efforts of this is not front of house, so to speak, but yes. it's back of house. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, it was a great place for kids to grow up too. Backstage at the theater, because there's always stuff for kids to do. Yeah, um, 
you know, you wouldn't necessarily want them running the the power saws, but you know, they can, <laughs> they they can, I still have this vivid image of Katie following the men around. She'd carry a coffee can and pick up like dropped nails and screws uh -huh. behind them as they go about their day. So yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, it's very cool. So, you know, good schools, good out of doors, good culture. Uh, what else do you need for kids? Yeah. You I know, mean, when they get older, they, they, they'll want to leave Carbondale maybe or maybe not. But to be a kid, it's all right. And, and to always be on a string with this town, right? It's, it's a town that you can leave from and explore and come back to. Oh, yeah. Right. And, and yeah. to see to see so many people, uh, you know, that I that I've grown up with just yeah. take their their mindset about that, that, yeah. you know, you've got an anchor here. Yeah. But that your leash off that anchor is quite long and oh, it can yeah. take you around the globe, however you see fit yeah. to do things big and small. Yeah. Some people talk about Carbondale as if it's a place with magical powers uh -huh. to hold you here. You know, it's like I came in 1960, whatever, and I just could never leave. <laughs> I don't think it's magic. I think, uh, I think it's all those things that I talked about, the friendliness of the people, the, uh, the history of the place. Uh, if you're really paying attention to that, it's that that draws you yeah. and keeps you. I think it... Uh I think it does. I think, and, and, you know, like we were talking before the podcast, the uh, you know, recording that the importance of this, right. Especially as we're, you know, at, at least in my hopes that we're going to see new bodies move in, yeah. that we're going to actively solicit new bodies to become part of this community and, and, and make that effort mm -hmm. that, that you've got to, that you've got to lift that story up. Yeah. Right. And you can't just like walk away and think that, all these new people are going to come in and wash away this old story. And, and with that goes the sins, because with that does not go the sins. That <laughs> deepens more than anything to try and ignore. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if sins were that easy? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, sometimes all you can do is face them. Yeah. You know. Well, and it's, we're, we're at that point as well. Where now, the the sociability of of telling full stories, yeah, right, of of understanding, uh, you know, like what we were just talking about with with uh, with segregation, uh, yeah. but so many more issues that that stand in this town, mm -hmm. right? That it is that it is almost the the it is. Uh, what's the right word here? Uh, fashionable is not exactly the gravity that I want to give to yeah. <laughs> the discussion, but that, but that's it, right? Like people are, are, are craving this type of, of healing on like a, on a, like a, on a mass scale to like tell these stories and address these things. And like, people want to put in the work to solve uh, yeah. for, for these problems that have existed uh, for yeah. some times and may, and maybe people don't feel like they can make an impact in a large urban environment or in a, in a hyper rural area with, you know, much fewer uh, people than we have, but they feel like, Oh, this, you know, Carbondale is a place where I can get in the mix on things yeah. like this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, well that's, uh, that's cool that Katie's like really 
like in it. She's made the career oh, yeah. out of yeah. it. Yeah, making a career in the arts. Boy, that's something to admire, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We could we could all only be so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 have you? I mean, have, is is there any one particular thing that you've made a career out of? Uh, over your time in, in Carbondale, I don't I don't oh, know anything yeah. on that side. Oh, of you, okay. Kathy. All right, sure. Um, <laughs> I feel like if I have to. <laughs> when uh, when I when we first moved to town, um, I stayed in the paid labor force. Well, I was in and out of the paid labor force uh, over the years, but I started out working in drug rehabs and outpatient substance abuse and a couple different agencies. And that was very rewarding. And then I went back to graduate school. Um, I got an MFA in poetry, of all things, and started teaching English. And then um, found that the colleges had English teachers, but they didn't have um, enough sociology teachers. Mm -hmm. So then. I said, well, you know, I have 28 graduate hours in sociology I'm not using. <laughs> Before you know it, I'm back in grad school again. And I ended up teaching sociology at the university and at Johnny Logan. And uh, that was very rewarding. So yeah, um, I'm retired now, so I don't have to do any of those things. <laughs> But uh, I look back on that fondly. I mean, I really miss being in a classroom. I miss having people to talk to about things that matter on a regular basis. You know, now um, I can talk to my little poodle all day long, mm -hmm. uh, you know, about race, class, and gender, but he just kind of like raises an eyebrow and walks away. But. Um, yeah. Is that where is that where being involved? Right. And again, I, I don't know your your history with Racial Justice Coalition. Yeah. If you're a founding yeah. member or how that yeah. how that all how that all comes together. But is is that part of what uh, you kind of seek out in some of that work? Exactly right. Um, well, there's there are two parallel stories here. The first one <clears throat> was the day when I was still working in the drug rehab and I was running an addictions group. Mm -hmm. You know, this was a group where all the residents would, would come in and we'd sit around in a circle and we'd be talking about addiction and how it works. And one day, and I could even tell you what day it was, mm -hmm. it was April 15th, 1989. And the reason I can tell you the exact day is because that was the day, first of all, that I realized I was talking about addictions with a cigarette in my hand. <laughs> I had been, you know, two packs a day for 15 years or something at that wow. point. And I realized I was either going to have to stop smoking or I was going to have to stop talking about addiction because, you know, the I had to listen to what I was saying. You don't, you don't or stop saying it. You don't participate in cognitive dissonance. That's not your jam. It's not my jam. <laughs> so here's the parallel story. Um, when I started teaching, and this was in particular at the university, when I started teaching, they needed someone to teach 200-level uh, classes in race and ethnic relations. 
Uh, so I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And I, I would teach three classes every semester of race, 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 race and class, race, class, and gender. Uh, until I got to that same point where I said to myself, how many times can I talk about the disadvantage that non-white people experience in this country before I'm gonna do something about it? Now, I'll grant you, talking about it is doing something about it, but I felt the need to do something about it. And about that same time, there was this new birth of interest in um, particularly police brutality and related things like Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. And uh, so a group of us started meeting at Church of the Good Shepherd. This was in 2013. And before you know it, we became a coherent group. And we have been working on, this is the Carbondale Racial Justice Coalition. You can find us on Facebook. <laughs> and every month we meet and we talk about um, race and how it's playing out, particularly in Carbondale, mm -hmm. particularly in systems that are either related to the justice system or adjacent to it, like the schools. This is how I got involved with the school board. Mm -hmm. uh, we were hearing stories about kids being um, disproportionately disciplined at the schools uh, on account of race. And I decided to look into it myself by going to school board meetings to find out what I could find out. And uh, uh, the connection there, of course, is that if kids are harshly treated in school, they're much more likely to fail or to drop out, mm -hmm. fail and then drop out which makes them much more likely to be involved in the criminal justice system with everything that entails. So, you know, the spiral of, of uh, disproportionate numbers of African-American youngsters in the criminal justice system just continues and continues unless somebody makes a plan to stop it. Mm -hmm. So when I started going to school board meetings, I got interested in other aspects of it. I found out, for example, that there had been um, an ongoing and rather serious conflict between the admin at that time and the faculty. Mm -hmm. The faculty had, in fact, um, made a very public uh, vote of no confidence in the superintendent mm -hmm. at that time. And I was like, oh, this could be done better. <laughs> <laughs> and that was pretty much my first campaign slogan. It's like, oh, this can be done better. <laughs> so <laughs> sure enough, um, there were a number of us who came in in 2017 um, with good hearts and good intentions. And there were a few already sitting on the board who were kind of glad to see the turnover um, shortly thereafter, the old superintendent resigned, and we started the process of finding a superintendent who would uh, provide the, the 
love and growth mm -hmm. that the district was capable of. The engagement, the innovation, the love, the growth. And we found that in Daniel Booth. And now, as it happens, he's going to go be superintendent at the high school. So, so our job is to hire a new superintendent and to see to it that the changes that we have made continue. Mm -hmm. The changes have been almost, without exception, positive ones. Um, morale got better almost overnight. Uh, test scores went up. The state rankings of our schools went up, which should be of interest to property owners. Mm -hmm. um, the curriculum got overhauled to um, align with state standards. Um, a number of very positive changes were made possible by these changes at the very top. And we'd like to see, I would like to see these changes continue. I think that as good as we are, as good as we have gotten in the past three years, we can get better. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of those things, right? Where I mean, this is this is a a you know active investment in the quality of life for everybody overall, right? You know, it's yeah. it's really interesting that you're like, hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, property owners. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know how realtors like to put the school rankings in their advertisements. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's so easy to put a school ranking out there. Yeah, but you know the the difference is, and, and I can't remember who I was talking to about this. It may have been Melissa or, or somebody else, but um, you know, d talking about the depth of programming that students have the opportunity to participate in in Carbondale that yeah. is not like everywhere else yeah. in this state or in the Midwest, you know, I mean, you can, you can go to a school just down the road that has a better ranking, but they're very, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> one, much one less, vertical and that's it. Much less diverse, yeah. much less um, open to innovation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, just the things that the kids can experience overall yeah. is very, you know, come in, you know, math book, yeah. Football. Yeah. Lunchtime. Like yeah. that's what you get there. And here it's like. Yeah. Rocket science, classical music. Yeah. Fruit snacks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to mention because of the university, we have such not just um, racial and ethnic diversity, but we have diversities of culture from all over the world. Yeah. You know, I, I counted up one day, I forget what the number was, but you know, something like 15 or 20 different languages spoken by kids in the district. You wow. know, just a fabulous opportunity mm -hmm. to learn about the world mm -hmm. even without leaving Carbondale. We're getting around to my favorite little phrase. There we go. Kathy, you don't have to go to the world the world comes to you here. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. Absolutely does. Uh, yep. The um, oh, what was I? What was I thinking beyond? Beyond oh the, um, I mean, t 
do you I mean do you do you get a chance to get feedback from teachers like as the school board like do you get insight into how they're handling and co- you know I'll say coping in a yeah. very like clinical sense <laughs> yeah. with with the pandemic and everything that they have to I mean the, the twins teacher is amazing it miss op is somebody special for these kids to have this year but I'm sure it's not as easy for every single teacher to be yeah. able to manage through this yeah and teachers are busy people yeah um the answer to your question is I tend to see the teachers in more formal ways. Yeah. Um, like, for example, at, before every board meeting, we have um, sessions where two board members will meet with a, a contingent of teachers mm-hmm. to talk about concerns. You know, it's a, it's a direct way of getting information, but it's formal. You know, it's like, oh, this is my month to meet with the teachers before mm-hmm. the board meeting. So we do that. We see them in board meetings. Um, we, we tend to have, well, I can't say we, I'll say I. I have personal relationships with a handful of them, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it's a fairly formal uh, relationship. One, a couple of things in the past year, though, have been different. Um, one being that the uh, District 95 has, as part of our recent innovations, has reestablished a foundation. Technically, we've had a foundation for 10 or 20 years, and uh-huh. it was just you know a, a, a sum of money sitting in the bank, mm-hmm. um, collecting a little bit of interest. But what we decided to do was to make it a going concern again. Yeah. So we took this, this foundation money and we gave grants to the teachers. This mm-hmm. year we specified we wanted uh, STEM projects to mm-hmm. fund. We ended up funding five of them. And it was fascinating to read uh, the proposals. And we ended up, in fact, I think we were originally only going to fund four of them, but all five were so interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, and the teachers were so excited and, and the projects just seemed so worthy that um, I sat on that committee and got to pass those along to the rest of the board and say, hey guys, hey guys. We can do a little more fundraising for the foundation and, <laughs> and fund all these projects, can't we? And we hope to make that an annual thing. It won't always be STEM. Yeah. Um, it was this year. And the other thing that was different this year and it was very gratifying was um, in the summertime for two or three or four, I'm not sure how many weeks in a row, the CEA, the Carbondale Educational Association, mm-hmm had their own Black Lives Matter events. Mm-hmm. They had one in front of the, the uh, district office on Giant City Road and a couple downtown, town square. Mm-hmm. And they were holding up signs that said Black Lives Matter at school. So of course I had to, I had to uh, grab my little grandson, Frankie, <laughs> by the hand and say, Frankie, let's go. And he's like, where are we going? I said, Black Lives Matter. And he's like, right on, Granny. <laughs> So we went and stood with the teachers, and that was gratifying. Again, it was kind of a formal thing, but it was it was gratifying, yeah. and I, you know, I think they were glad to see us too. Uh, and it's, I see these uh, efforts be, roll up into 
<clears throat> the identities of of our kids, right? So so um, Zach and Peyton, up until you know just a couple years ago, when when they when they moved in um, uh, to my house, when <laughs> when Marie and I okay. decided to move in together and, and then get married, the they their their exposure uh, in schools was activity and heron. Yeah. Right. It, it wasn't it wasn't to the depth of yeah. what it is here. And now, I mean, the, the kids take a very concerted interest in uh, race as a as a construct, as this thing that you have to actually like yeah. think about and talk about it and concern yourself with and like navigate. Yeah. Um, you know, both for yourself, but for those around you. Yeah. Uh, and understand the complexities of it. And, you know, obviously they're still only 10, right? They're, they're yeah. they, they've got a lot to, to think about and learn. But the fact that they're even like thinking and engaged in this conversation yes. is astonishing. Yes. Yeah. Right. And it's like every every time that I see a uh, teaching uh bill come through a state legislature at the federal level or whatever it may be that says, you know, black people existed and here's their history and here's how we're going to teach it. Or, you know, uh, gay and queer people have existed mm -hmm. and here's how we're going to acknowledge them and here's mm -hmm. how we're going to teach it. It's like we're well ahead of that curve in terms of mm -hmm. being out front with our actions uh, mm -hmm. while policy is still trying to catch up. Yeah. It's like if the whole country had actual inclusive teaching curriculums that didn't say this is how you have to think, because that, that's that's the BS that, that folks on a conservative line always say, oh, well, well, I'm being told how to think. No, 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 somebody's just acknowledging their existence, yeah. and you don't like that, and that's okay. Yeah. We'll move past you. Uh, yeah. But just getting to see firsthand what this type of um, you know action and, and concern from uh, teachers and, and from the institution of a school uh, how it how it actually helps develop kids I, I'm thrilled with the outcomes oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah yeah and at the same time it's important to recognize that we're still not where we ought to be mm -hmm. I mean we are taking the steps and that's on us and that's wonderful um, I think we just came out of Black History Month, and I think that's more important for the white kids than the black kids. Absolutely. Um, because uh, where else are they going to hear this if not from school? Mm -hmm. you know? They're not going to probably hear it from their elders, unless their elders sat in one of my classes <laughs> you know, at the <laughs> university or at John A. But yeah, it's important. and. Um, and we have to be willing to keep learning ourselves. I look back now, you know, over a teaching career, and I think about some of the dumb things that I've said and, and done and thought was right back, you know, when I first started teaching years ago, and I go, oh, I'm <laughs> glad they didn't have you know, phones in every person pocket back then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we have to be willing. We have to be willing to let our students be right some, when, when they're right. Mm -hmm. And that's not always easy to do. And we also have to commit ourselves to keep learning stuff. Here's another thing I'm very proud of the district for. Um, not this past summer, but the summer before, they undertook 
um, uh, a summer training program about um, cultural competency mm -hmm. to learn about how to teach the kids that they're teaching, you know? And I had veteran teachers tell me that some of the stuff was new to them. They'd never thought about it before, but it seemed right mm -hmm. once they knew. So, you know, the saying is, when you know better, do better. <laughs> and uh, assume that you have to keep working to know better, no matter how far down this road you've gone. The, the interesting uh, juxtaposition there that that was that was made right right before talking about the the training in cultural competency is you know, what is teaching versus what is application of authority oh my right <laughs> and that's that, that's that's not a line that we have to go down right but it's just to, yeah. to just to say that you know there there is a there is a difference between what yeah. it is to teach yeah. and and what it is to have learning occur in an environment because you know if learning is occurring that doesn't mean that something's always being taught Right, learning can occur without teaching the yeah. formal structure being there. Yeah. But then also the the application of authority and the and the command of authority as an adult in a workspace yeah. trying to guide children and, and how all this balances out, which I think is a pretty strong relationship to uh, you know the idea of service versus authority yeah. in our policing, and that's a whole different conversation. Oh indeed it is. Yeah. <laughs> in um Sociology, we talk about the hidden curriculum. Uh -huh. uh, we know what it is schools are supposed to do. They're supposed to teach you how to read, write, think, and so forth. Uh, but there is what we call a hidden curriculum in which we are teaching other things as well without even, sometimes even out of our own awareness, things mm -hmm. like we're teaching kids to sit down and shut up. Mm -hmm. You know, which is a useful job skill. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> we're teaching depends kids. Depends on the job, no. <laughs> yeah, well, it depends on the job. And some of the, some of the things in the hidden curriculum are, are you know, fairly positive for the individual. Like we're teaching them how to get along with other people. It's mm -hmm. a useful job skill. Um, but there are many, many things such as the role and meaning of authority that we're teaching whether we're aware of it or not. Mm -hmm. So my advice is be aware of it. Yep. Be aware of the message because the message matters and the message is what kids are walking out of the classroom with. Mm -hmm. And again, that just goes back to the difference between living in our environment in Carbondale and even going just 10 minutes in any direction yeah. Of of what the context of that lesson that they pick up and, and walk away with yeah. is. Right? I mean it, it's <laughs> it was funny talking with talking with Nick, who in his twelve years of, of living in Carbondale has, has really taken into the the red history of, of this town and the mm -hmm. very um uh the very academic history of this town and talking about the idea of Southern Illinois University as this uh, way to try and calm the ungovernables uh, <laughs> of, of Southern Illinois, right? And, and here we are, the, the center of this whole 
ungovernable <laughs> area, and we still continue to teach our our children through allowing them more, uh, you know, more uh, leeway in spaces of authority. That yes, you are to challenge authority when it is right to challenge mm-hmm. authority, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, to engage in it from uh, from what you think is your righteous perspective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just funny how that all kind of kind of yeah. comes and and turns uh turns around into into different things oh how do you like uh how do you like the the grandma life how has that been oh gosh oh my gosh <laughs> yeah uh it's like a lot like parenting uh only it has its perks yeah and of course, the perks are the ones everybody knows about. Um, <laughs> you give them right back. <laughs> you get to give them back. Yeah. When you're tired, it's like, okay, darling. Uh, pat, pat, pat. Time to go home now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, it's also complicated. Maybe particularly, I'm aware of this now because of the pandemic. Because we all need extra help these days. Mm-hmm. And as the grandmother, I'm always cognizant of my role in being the one to uh, stay with Frankie while his parents are both working. Mm-hmm. Uh, being the one to see to it that he, he logs on to his little Chromebook <laughs> and starts talking to his teacher uh-huh. promptly first thing in the morning. Um, And it's not just me. I remember a few years before I retired, I was teaching a class on the sociology of marriage and the family. And one day I I said to my class, uh, which was mostly women, not surprisingly, (laughs) I said, I think I'm working with some old figures here for the cost of daycare to the working family. What is the actual cost of daycare in this area at this time? And they all looked at me like, we don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? You're, you, you know, half of you are mothers. And they were like, if it wasn't for the grandparents, mm-hmm. we would not be able to be here. Yep. We wouldn't be in college. We wouldn't be working. And I think that's another thing perhaps that sets Carbondale apart, even though we are so intellectually rich. We are not economically rich to the same degree. Mm-hmm. And I think we, that makes us more dependent on family. Mm-hmm. So for example, my grandparenting is much different from my own mother's grandparenting. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is much more hands-on. Mine is much more, yeah, don't pull the flower bulbs out of the garden. Don't, don't, <laughs> Don't do that, you know. Um, And I think that's true for a lot of people in Carbondale. We rely on each other more because we're all each other has. I'm I'm both a product of that uh, as well as a uh, current, uh, you know, applicator of of that process. I mean, if it wasn't for um, Maria's... Yeah. um, Maria's parents there's there's no way yeah right there there's absolutely no way that we would be able to uh to manage this just the same again even though I'm estranged 
uh, from my family. Uh, you know, the reality is that, that my biological son would not have the same, uh, you know, comfort and, and, yeah. you know, livability if it wasn't for, uh, you know, my parents being there to, to yeah. take him uh, on as needed uh, when his mother uh, needs it. I mean, it's just the, the, yeah. and you, it's such a concern to think, well, what would it be like without the grandparents, without mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. you know, what is essentially a three generation structure yeah. of support, right? The, the amount of time and years and effort that it took to get there, mm -hmm. um, just to be able to, exist i won't even say sustain but exists mm -hmm. in this modern society where mm -hmm. everybody has to work everybody has to go to school everybody has to be taken away from the the core <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know family unit whatever that may be right like huzzah that the the core of the family unit is structured differently and that it doesn't just have to be mom dad yeah. and brother yeah. sister and nuclear family whatever but the support yeah. <laughs> structure still needs to be there <laughs> yeah yeah it does it uh. sure does uh, i don't know if you knew this but um my late husband had multiple sclerosis okay for you know 30 years that the whole time we were married and so i was in the paid labor force most of that time not all of it but most of that time and he took care of the kids. Uh -huh. He did a good job, too, in his own uh, army sergeant sort of way. <laughs> he, was, that, was, that his, uh, was that his background? Yeah. He came out of the military? Yeah. yeah. He, he, um, he got MS while he was serving in Vietnam. And, uh, and uh, that was his experience, his work experience. Did the military the ever do anything to make it right or take care or acknowledge the damage that they did to him? The, you know, the VA was good to us. They were. Um, they provided medical care. They provided um, uh, pensions. Um, they provided as much as could be provided in a material sense, yeah. they took care of. Um, did anybody ever step up and say, look, this shouldn't have happened, and we're sorry that it did? No, but adults don't expect that, do no. they? <laughs> adults realize that there is only thankless existence, and <laughs> you pick up and move on. Well, that's kind of bleak, but, but yeah, you, you don't learn to expect gratitude although after he died um i got in the mail a certificate that was signed by an auto pen i'm sure but it was you know president obama's signature and that that did my heart a lot of good it was you know thank you for his service um thank you for everything you did to make his life livable you know that was that's worth a lot when you've lost someone He was a good man, and he raised some fine daughters. He added a lot to this community, too. He was a longtime member of the Peace Coalition, 
the Shawnee Green Party, I think he was a founding member of that, the uh, Democratic Socialists, I mean, he did it all. Listening to Claire mm-hmm. just, you know, talk or write about her father, it's always oh. very... yeah. Uh, yeah. Is there a certain special bond between being the oldest and being <laughs> dad's dad's daughter in that sense? Uh, I think being the oldest, there's a special bond there. Um, I'll tell you one story from when she was... <laughs> and then we'll both get in trouble for it. Yeah, no. probably. <laughs> Sorry, Claire. <laughs> She'll probably scold me for telling this. But I remember one time he had... She was real little. She was still an infant. And he had a meeting to go to. And he didn't get out very often because he was the stay-at-home parent. But he had a meeting to go to. And I was home alone with this baby. This baby. (laughs) And the baby started crying. And, of course, I picked her up. And I'm, you know, making all these mommy sounds and trying to soothe her. Nope, 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 nope. But here's the thing. Among his other... Um, mitzvahs, his other uh, attempts to help people. He used to record magazine articles and newspaper articles for the, what did they call the reading program? Oh, the the Southern Illinois For the challenge. Yeah, Yeah. the visually challenged. Yeah. So I I popped in a cassette of him reading, oh, I don't know, it was probably a Harper's article about the Guatemalan Civil War or something. (laughs) (laughs) And that baby calmed right down. She heard the voice, and she was like, oh, isn't that sweet? Uh, A daddy and his girl. That was heartwarming. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't family great? Most people's. Fair enough. (laughs) No, that's fair enough. I just, I've, I'm a, I, I hate to always be that that person in a conversation, but I just I, I gotta live yeah. my live my truth as they'd say. Well you have to make a <laughs> distinction between the family that fate threw you into and the family that you make for yourself. Yep. And, in and this case very... clearly I'm talking about the family that, that E. G. and I made for ourselves. Yeah. Which included not only these darling daughters, but you know, the broader community. Yeah. The uh was he I don't know. I, I, I don't know what what right questions to ask about. Yeah. E.g. Was uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll this. OK, so here's an interesting one enough for to, to me in terms of the uh, non-traditional, uh, you know, uh, woman take the last name of the man. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, marriage or partnership. Is yeah. that, and I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you two were married or were not. We were actually um, was was that just a you were like, I'm keeping my last name. Yep. and That's that. Yep. Nice. Yep. Um, a couple of times I got a little squishy on the subject simply because I was tired of not being identified correctly as my kid's mother. Uh-huh. Um, but he was always, no, you stick to your guns. He said, um, your, your name is your name. And... If anyone should change their name, it should be me. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll keep it. 
Thank you very much. How'd you two meet? Oh, gosh. We were at Western Illinois University. Um, I was teaching criminal justice in those days, and he was uh, a local peace activist. And we met at a peace rally on the quad. Uh, it was, it was um, ROTC day, ROTC day mm -hmm. at Western Illinois University. And so the place, the quad was crawling with ROTC guys. Uh, it's a big program there at Western. And they even had a big spectacular show. They had, you know, ROTC guys like rappelling down off the library. It was a very <laughs> big deal. And EG spotted me. I was standing in the middle of the sidewalk having a heated conversation with ROTC colonel, who was not happy to see the peace activists turning out with our, you know, our hippie signs and whatnot. And he sees me having this heated conversation, and he said to himself, that's the girl for me. <laughs> so is this before or after he would have actually had to serve in Vietnam? It was after. Okay. It was after. He had gone to Western on the GI Bill. Got it. Mm-hmm. You know, I always... The difference between this decades-long war, multiple wars that my generation has lived through versus the the Vietnam era and just what is the same and, and what is different. So many, so many different points that I would imagine are so similar, but so many yeah. different things I would imagine are so not the same. I remember at his funeral, one of my nephews came up to me and he was a, I have many nephews. I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> But he had served in Iraq in recent years and had had a tough time adjusting back to civilian life, had really had a tough time. But he came up to me at E.G.'s funeral and he said, until I met E.G., I never realized that I could be proud of my service without being proud of my war. So I think the answer to your question is there's more similarities than you think yeah. from that time to this. That is for so many people. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't, having, having never mm -hmm. uh, you know, worked up the bravery myself to, to enter the armed forces, and I, I, yeah. I just... Yeah. Can't imagine what that battle is yeah. internally to yeah. have to say, you know, I, I again, like you said, proud of proud of my service without having to be proud of my war. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he he wore his courage lightly. He um, he says, oh, I just enlisted because I had gone to college for a semester and flunked out and I just you know <laughs> so I kind of flipped to the you know the Hughes family default his uh -huh. father had had served in World War II and his brother had served in Korea and I mean it was just like this is how they did yeah so 
he doesn't, he, he never made a claim to any particular heroism or courage or fortitude. It was just, um, this is what the men in his family did. And then, as I say, he came back and, and finished college on the GI Bill and, and, um, and then learned to think about war differently in politics and life. It was very different after his experience in Vietnam. Did he bring this person to you, or do you feel like you helped to shape the, you know, Green Party founding peace activist, e.g. that he would have been known as here? I think we were both at the same peace rally, so we kind of started um, at the same place. Uh -huh. But over the years, over the 30 years we were together, we kind of pushed each other to go further, go further, go further. You know, um, I pushed him into greater understanding of differences, uh, uh, like diversity, um, racial diversity, sexual diversity, um, pushed him to think about these things in new ways, um, uh, worked on his feminism, which, you know, he, he started out in a pretty good place, but being a white man, he could always improve, and mm -hmm. he did. And he kind of did the same thing for me. I was, I was um, against war, but I had no coherent politics. I was kind of all over the place politically. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of like brought out the best in each other, which is the best thing you can hope for in a marriage, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Because over the course of 30 years, you don't want to stay where you're at, so you either have to grow together or grow apart. And if you're gonna to grow together, you have to, each of you nurture those parts of you that contribute to your growth. I'm making it sound a lot simpler than it is. <laughs> like everything else, it's a day-to-day -day slog. <laughs> it's always easy to look back on exactly 30 years, and it's yeah. you go, yeah. oh well, here's here's the journey now that I've been on it, and yeah. this is where we yeah. came from and got yeah. to. And since you know he's he's safely in heaven, I can say anything, and he can't contradict me. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait, you're gonna fall you're gonna fall over a tape somewhere that's gonna have him saying something that's <laughs> and you'll go, oh, I thought I was I thought I was on from this, but nope. There's always a there's always a way to go back to. Uh, that's that's phenomenal. I can't even remember what, what phrasing the lead out was on that. It was yeah. it felt punctuated, then we got off onto a little bit yeah. more, but that is episode forty three of the WTF Carbondale podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kathy Field. Uh, as uh, the guest for this one, yeah. um, is running uh, for her second term for District 95 uh, School Board and help to give us uh, a little bit of insight into the functions of the school board and just give us a good primer, uh, hopefully, for some of these conversations that we'll have next uh, with several other uh, of the candidates who have, uh, for the most part, all, all been receptive to this. So hopefully we'll be able to get that cranked out in about a week. But uh, as always, have a good one, whatever that one may be. <laughs>